Uh, well, um, right before Holy Week, uh, um, just a few weeks ago, I was kind of teaching us through a series I called Well Read, a series of teachings on the Bible and how to read the Bible. And related to that, for several weeks then, we began to collect questions from you about the Bible or about things you've read in the Bible or about how to read the Bible. And uh, this morning, I want to return to that series for, for a couple of weeks here and, uh, and begin to try to address some of those questions. But I need to go ahead and tell you right up front, uh, the, the questions we received were pretty wide-ranging. Uh, and so I'm not going to be able to address all of them in a Sunday morning setting. Um, and so what I would like, if there's interest, what I would really like, I have interest, I don't know if you do, uh, uh, but following you know, what I share this morning, what I share next week, I'd like to set up for a, 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 a let's talk about it gathering uh, that can be a little bit more kind of give and take where you can shoot your questions or your opposition or your, uh, your, your uh, concerns, and we can kind of talk through those things back and forth a little bit more in that environment. So uh, if there's interest in that, we'll hopefully set that up here before terribly long. But having said all that, as we get moving in uh, focus this morning, will you stand with me, please, as you're able, in honor of the Word of God? And just to get us focused on moving, we're going to either read or recite together uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This was the first passage of Scripture we memorized together in this well-read series, and so I thought it was good to return to it today. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, then, this is what the Bible says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and, and you may be seated. Now, a few nights ago at my house, we were, we were playing a game together as a family, and at one point during the game, uh, we were given the title to a movie, and everyone was told to write down what they thought might, might be an appropriate plot for a movie with that title. So the title we were given was um, Hello Trouble. And, and, and for example, I wrote down on my card, um, a self-centered bachelor finds his life turned upside down when his young niece comes to live with him unexpectedly. My son Noah wrote on his card, Konnichiwa, Chikbausun, Luk Choi. I'm not kidding. That's actually what he wrote. And uh, um, that sort of thing happens at my house, I'm sorry to say, all the time. <laughs> Noah's response was hilarious because it was, of course, total nonsense. But believe it or not, it actually does raise an important point related to our study of the Bible. Namely, that it doesn't do you any good to read anything if you don't know what the words mean. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 11 that at that time the whole world had one language and a common speech. That means everybody understood everybody else. But in Genesis chapter 11, the people rebelled against God. He told them on a number of occasions to spread out and to go fill the whole face of the earth. But in chapter 11, they decided not to do that. Instead, they decided to settle down and build a city very specifically so they would not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God's response to that rebellion was swift and brilliant. He confused their languages so they could no longer understand one another. The immediate result was they took off together in different directions with the people they could understand. And so, in the end, the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. Now, the moral of the story is don't try to stop God from getting what He wants. 
But the result of that event in history has been that from that moment till this very moment today, however many years later, it matters what languages you speak and what languages you understand. And so for the Bible to be helpful to you, for it to have its full impact in your life, you need to be able to read it, you need to be able to hear it in a language you can comprehend. For the first 1,500 years of Christianity, Christians in the East, by and large, read the Bible in Greek, while Christians in the West, for the most part, tended to read it in Latin. Following the Protestant Reformation, however, with its powerful, renewed emphasis on the authority of Scripture, there was a flurry of Bible translations into all manner of different languages, regional languages like German and English. That flurry largely came to a stop with the completion in 1611 of the King James Version of the Bible. But by the early 1900s, there was another flurry of Bible translating uh, based primarily on the discovery of many additional Bible, ancient Bible manuscripts, many of them much older than the manuscripts used by the original King James translators. So that today, today, there are more than 450 translations of the Bible in English alone. That brings us back then to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And the Bible here very plainly says that it, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by God. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. I stand firmly on that. And this, by the way, is one of those cases where in the Bible the word all means all. Every bit of Scripture, every word of the Bible was breathed out and breathed into by God Himself. But that raises an interesting question. We say every word was given by God, but different translations use different words. What are we to do with that? God gave the words of the Bible to the people He appointed and anointed to write Scripture, to Paul and Moses and, and Luke and Daniel. Modern-day Bible translators are not anointed and inspired in the same way as the prophets and apostles were when it comes to penning Scripture. They're simply doing their very best to take what's been passed down and translate it in ways appropriate for others. So let's be clear. When we speak of the Bible as infallible, as breathed by God Himself, so that no part of it is in any way wrong or false, we're talking in those moments about the original texts. We do not mean that every word of every edition ever printed or copied or translated since is as infallible or is infallible in the same way as the original text. Let me offer an extreme example. In 1631, the royal printers in London went to print uh, more copies, reprint copies of the King James Version of the Bible. There was a typesetting error, however, leaving out an important word in Exodus 20.14 so that those editions of the Bible said, Thou shalt commit adultery. It became known as the Sinner's Bible or the Wicked Bible. And I bet you if you had a copy of it today, you could make an awful lot of money. Obviously, how accurately someone copies the biblical text, as well as how accurately someone translates it, is incredibly important. 
add to that reality, add to that the reality that we don't have the original text. We don't have the original letters penned by Paul. We don't have the original biographies penned by Luke or, or Matthew. And that brings us back to that crucial question, can I trust that the scriptures I have accurately reflect the scriptures God breathed? That's a great question. And the answer is absolutely, provided you're using a good translation. As I mentioned in an earlier message, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, really for the entire Bible, is overwhelming and unprecedented. For every other written source from antiquity, every other written source from antiquity, our knowledge is based on a relatively small number of copies, typically written many hundreds and hundreds of years after the original. For example, we have just 10 ancient manuscript copies, just 10, of Caesar's commentary on the Gaelic War. And all 10 of them were written roughly 1,000 years after Caesar's death. We have one ancient manuscript copy of Tacitus's um, Annals of Imperial Rome. And it was penned some 700 years after his death. By contrast, we have over 20,000 ancient manuscript copies of the New Testament. I've covered some of this before, but I felt like it was important to cover it again. Dozens of those dating but within two to 300 years of the original, and a few written within 100 years of the original. By working backward from and comparing those 20,000-plus ancient Bible manuscripts, we can be absolutely academically and intellectually confident that we know exactly what the original document said in almost every single case. Now, would you believe that in all 20-plus thousand ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament, in, in every one of them, there's not a single discrepancy or a single word that's different? I hope not, because that's not true. The truth is there are discrepancies. There are variants in those 20,000-plus copies of the New Testament. Sometimes there are variations in translation. Sometimes it's because a copyist made a mistake and copied down a word wrong here or there. And if you're thinking, well, God could have watched over the Scriptures and made sure every single copy of the Bible is exactly, says exactly what it was supposed to say, the truth is He could have but he didn't because he, frankly, very rarely works that way. He chooses to work instead through regular people like you and me to imagine that what God can do in theory is what he always does in practice is a common but serious religious error. God could keep every Christian from ever getting sick, but he doesn't, at least not yet. The day will come when our salvation is fully manifest and these frail mortal bodies will be changed. In that day, sickness and death will be no more. But this side of that day, we still have to contend with the frailties and limits of the flesh. And those limitations and frailties apply as well to the translation and copying of the Bible. There are a few places where the discrepancies in the 20-plus thousand manuscript documentary evidence of the New Testament are hard to resolve. Undoubtedly, there are people who wouldn't want me to tell you that. 
But it's true. In fact, I was trained years ago never to say these sorts of things because it might cause you not to trust the Bible. The problem is it's true. And the good news is it has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not you can trust the Bible. In fact, if you have a translation that was made in the, in the 20th or the 21st century, most of these are pointed out for you in the Bible that you have in a footnote to the text. Let me just give you an example. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, the Bible says of Jesus, After this, uh, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. At least the Bible says that in the NIV, the ESV, and the NLT. The King James and the New King James say that Jesus appointed 70 of these guys. And the difference is based on which ancient manuscript the translators relied on because the manuscripts disagree on that point. Now, one reason we have discrepancies, one reason we have variances in, in these ancient manuscripts, of course, is because we have so many ancient manuscripts to begin with, 20,000 plus. If we only had one ancient copy of the New Testament, we would have no variance at all and nothing to compare it to, to be certain it was accurate. All in all, these variants in these ancient manuscripts that we use to try and translate the Bible to today, all in all, these variants fall into one of four major categories. First, and by far the most common, the largest category, the one most of these variants fall into, is variations in spelling. Think color versus color, or theater versus theater. Next are changes of words that uh, don't affect the meaning. Think he went in versus he entered. The words are different. The meaning is exactly the same. Next are changes in the words that do affect the meaning, but that clearly reflect a mistake or an error. Think, thou shalt commit adultery. That was clearly an error in the sending along of the text. Finally, there are words that changes that could affect the meaning. Think he appointed 70 or he appointed 72. Thankfully, these are very, very rare. Less than 1% of all the variants in the 20-plus thousand manuscript copies, of the New Testament, less than 1% of them fall into this category, and none of them, not a single one of them, has a bearing or impact on any major matter of doctrine. That brings me finally then to the matter of translations. And let me say this very plainly. Because we believe the original words were provided quite literally by God breathed out and breathed into by God himself, it matters that Bible translations accurately convey what God breathed. It matters that they do a good job of putting out what the original text was. Because when it comes to the actual text of the Bible, you don't want someone's interpretation. You want the actual text itself. Now, let me say quickly as an aside, all teaching and preaching of the Bible involves interpretation and application. That's not a problem. That's a given. That's what teaching and preaching are there to do. Now, solid biblical teaching and preaching will strive to explain and interpret and apply in a way that is true to the meaning of the original text. 
But teaching and preaching, by definition, go beyond the bare words of Scripture. And obviously, the Lord felt like that was important because, according to the Bible, He specifically instituted the offices of preaching and teaching. And He specifically anointed and called certain people to function in those offices and to carry out that function within the body of Christ to help bring His church to maturity. The anointed, biblically consistent explanation of Scripture is a ministry ordained and established by God, and it will be needed until Jesus returns. But to explain the Scripture well requires accurate translations. And with well over 450 English-speaking options to choose from, the question naturally arises, are they all as one just as good as another? And the answer is a resounding no. Now, there are a lot of schools of thought in biblical translation, way too many to get into, but I boiled them down for you to two. Verbatim translations, or word-for-word translations, or what are called dynamic equivalence translations, or thought-for-thought translations. The ESV, the NASB, and the King James Version represent three of the most common word-for-word translations of the Bible. The idea there is to stick as closely as possible to the original words in the original order they occur. Um, the New International Version and the NLT are two examples of dynamic equivalence translations. And the idea there is to translate the thought behind the word, what, they, what, what the text is trying to say. And before you pick one of these immediately, uh, uh, let me just give you an example here. Keora S is a common Spanish language phrase, which any Spanish teacher or any bilingual American would tell you means, what time is it? Keora S means, what time is it? But that's not what the words say. Word for word, Keora S is what hour is. So if you were going to translate Keora S for someone, would you say what hour is? Or would you say what time is it? You'd probably say what time is it, but that's a dynamic equivalent translation, not a word for word one. Now, both of these translation methods have real merit. The benefit of word-for-word is it gets you as close as possible to the original words in the original syntax. The problem is it can be sometimes very difficult to read, very awkward, and hard to follow. Uh, The benefit of a dynamic equivalent translation is it can be much easier to read. The danger is you run the risk of picking up some of the thought preferences or prejudices of the translator if they get a little too loosey with telling you what 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 this thought means. And so I do need to tell you, when it comes to dynamic equivalent translations, you need to be careful, and you need to be choosy. They're not all created equal. In general, I can comfortably recommend that you feel free to study from the New International Version, particularly 1984. I'm not a big fan of NIV after 1984. They they moved to a more gender-neutral language that that I have some concerns with. Uh, But in general, NIV, especially 1984, ESV, NASB, King James, New King James, are good translations of the Bible you should feel confident in. That brings me to one final thought. One step even farther away from word-for-word translation is something called paraphrasing or Bible paraphrases. The message, the living Bible, the good news Bibles are good examples. These are not translations of the Bible at all. In these cases, someone has taken a translation and then they've paraphrased the words into something even looser. Paraphrases are often very readable and frankly, sometimes even entertaining. 
But in paraphrases, you absolutely are going to move into the thoughts and opinions of the paraphraser. And you are moving farther and farther away from the pure words of Scripture. In that regard, a paraphrase is much more like what, what someone does when they preach and teach the Scripture. It's more like uh, expounding on, commenting on uh, what, what the Scripture itself says. But it's not reading the Bible itself. And you need to know that if you're using a paraphrase. You're not really reading the words of the Bible as God gave them. And so it can be very useful for devotional use or whatnot, but you shouldn't use it as a study Bible, and you should never build doctrine or theology on a paraphrase. Let me give you an example. Romans 8.35 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, that's the New International Version, 1984. Uh, Eugene Peterson made a famous paraphrase called The Message, and he renders this verse this way. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed what happened there or not. But um, in his paraphrase of Romans 8.35, Peterson has slipped in a massive category change. Uh, it's a category change that, if mistaken for actual Scripture, could cause serious theological conundrums. In the original, uh, uh, the, the God-breathed words, I could give them to you in Greek, but I'll translate them. Paul, the examples Paul lists are affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. These are all difficulties that come on you from the outside, which fits the context of this passage a context uh, about dealing with trials and hardships of this life. That context was given back in verse 18, where Paul wrote, uh, For I am convinced, uh, 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 or I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There was this whole last chunk of Romans chapter 8 is a discussion of dealing with the trials and hardships of this life. Uh, how, did, how do I deal with present suffering? How to handle the hard things that come at you totally beyond your control. That's what the last half of Romans 8 is about. But by adding the words, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture, to his paraphrase, Peterson has added not merely a few words, but an entirely alien concept to the verse. He's added a new category. So that in this paraphrase, this verse is no longer just about the hard things that happen to you beyond your control, but now they're also about bad things you do that you could have controlled. And that's not in the Bible. And the problem is, if you read this as Scripture, you might come away with the impression that your sin has no impact at all on your relationship with God. But in the Bible, Isaiah 59 says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Hebrews 10 says that we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul lists a whole bunch of sins. He calls them works of the flesh. And then he concludes in verse 21 by saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, 
My, my point is, in, in paraphrasing Romans 8.35, I suspect what happened was Eugene Peterson was reading Romans 8. He was excited. I mean, Romans 8 is a fantastic chapter. I love Romans. He, I think he got excited. He was thinking, how does this apply? What do I do with it? He's a pastor. He's thinking, what are the applications of this? And he accidentally or purposely, I don't know, put in there a whole different category than what's in the text. This whole subject of sin. But that's not at all what the verse is saying. Now, let me quickly say this. Please do not leave here hating on Eugene Peterson or the message, paraphrase of the Bible. I like Eugene Peterson. I believe he loves Jesus. I believe he loves the Bible. And he has always been very adamant in, explain, in, in standing that, that the message is a paraphrase, not a translation. And Eugene Peterson specifically tells pastors, do not preach for the message from the pulpit. It's a paraphrase. Paraphrases like sermons involve the thoughts and interpretations of the paraphraser. But like sermons, then they must be tested. Scripture shouldn't have to be tested. Paraphrases do because they bring in the thoughts and opinions of the paraphraser. And in this particular case, Romans 8.35, I think Peterson got it wrong. I don't think he's a heretic and I don't think he's a hack. But the message is not a Bible you should use for study. And in conclusion, I have to say this. In recent years, the Passion Translation has become very popular among charismatics. But you need to know, and I don't know if you got one or not, but you need to know in terms of its reflection of the original text, it is not at all a good translation. In fact, I would suggest aggressively it's way more like a paraphrase than like a translation. And in fact, if they simply presented the, the passion as a paraphrase, I'd be fine with it. I could treat it exactly the same way I treat the message. And I could say, you know what? Uh, it's not accurate enough for serious study. It is definitely clouded by the paraphraser's own bias and preferences, but it's probably okay for occasional supplemental devotional use. I, I am concerned because lots of people have brought these concerns to the people responsible for the passion translation, and I'm concerned that they haven't been willing just to say, okay, it's a paraphrase, because uh, it violates all kinds of standard translational rules. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think it's fine as a paraphrase, um, but you need to know it's not a particularly good translation. Now, now the, the author contends over and over again that they're pulling out extra things that are there in the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, um, and I can tell you from all the examples I've seen, uh, that's not accurate. Uh, um, uh, uh, sometimes they're double translating words that, that, that's, that that's not how you translate. That's just not how you do it. Just because a word can mean two things doesn't mean it means both things in the context. Uh, so they do a lot of that in the Passion Bible. And also there are plenty of words that they've stuffed in there that aren't, that aren't anywhere in, in the Greek or the Hebrew or anything else. The, the Passion Translation of the Psalms is 50% longer than the actual. That's how many extra words have been, been, been put in there. So again, I, I think it's fine for occasional devotional usage but not as a study Bible. Here's the bottom line. I close. The Bible is God's written word. You shouldn't approach it superstitiously, but you should approach it reverently. And to esteem the Bible as you should means to take seriously the words as God gave them, reading them as they were meant to be read in a version that translates those words with integrity. After the close of the service, I'll be down here. If you want to talk, if you've got questions or concerns, I'll be glad to talk to you after the service. I'll just hang out there for just a little bit. But for now, let's pray. Father, as always, 
We thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Lord, for the gift of your word. Uh, Lord, Lord in, in all the many forms that that takes, and particularly for the gift of your written word, the Bible. Lord, that we can stake our lives on it. We can stake our eternity on it. Uh, we, can, we can shape and guide and conform our lives to it and around it. It never lets us down. It never deceives or misleads. We're so grateful for the gift of the Holy Scriptures. Lord, continue to stir in us a hunger and a commitment to esteem it like it deserves to be esteemed, to treat it with the care and the attention it deserves to be treated with, to love it and honor it and take it seriously. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.